Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Looking Glass Darkly with your host, Davis Kiro. I'm going to keep our intro short today because I really want to get into this podcast. Um, our guest today is one of my oldest friends. We've had a friendship that spanned well over 20 years. He's been not only one of my closest and best friends, but he's also been one of my most frequent and prolific art collaborators. We've been in bands together. We've done podcasts together. We've done film collaborations together very recently. He is truly someone who I value in my life. And just a few months ago, he was in a very terrifying and traumatic car accident that nearly cost him his life. When you hear Jason's story, I, I think that it's important to really try to put yourself in the headspace of someone who goes through such a traumatic experience. To be blindsided by another car, to find yourself having woken up from a coma, to having to learn to walk again. These are experiences that most of us couldn't dream of and our worst nightmares have to go through. And yet Jason not has not only gone through them, but he has persevered. As we'll talk about in the podcast, when the accident first occurred, the doctor the doctors that were treating Jason didn't believe that he would survive. And if he did, we had no idea to what level he'd ever regain a normal life again. And this this podcast is as much a celebration of the miracles that the universe can provide to us, can bestow upon us, as it is a celebration of just the life of everything that Jason is. I recommend that you all listen to his podcast, The Regrettable Century, where he does with his brother Christopher. And I invite you to enjoy this podcast. I think that Jason offers such amazing perspectives for someone having gone through something so difficult. His his views on life, his openness, his, his humor, um, it should be as unlifting to you all as it was for me as we were discussing. So again, I'm going to keep it short today. You know, guys don't want to hear me babble. Let's listen to Jason. Let's listen to his story. So my guest, without further ado, from the Regrettable Century podcast, Jason. Well, hello there, my dear friend. How are you today? <laughs> uh, I'm I'm great, actually. Yeah. Was, How about which, you? Well, I, I'm actually actually I'm in a really good mood today. If I'm being good. honest with you, I um I've been trying to be more mindful about feeding myself a healthy breakfast, both like physically, <clears throat> which I don't know about um, vegan ham and cheese bagel with Vegemite constitutes as healthy, but it was surely nourishing. Um, but also sort of mentally, I typically wake up just, you know, 20, 30 minutes more than before just does. And I have been sort of trying to find things to listen to before the doom scrolling begins. Um, yeah. And, and hopefully That's important. Yeah. Hopefully it puts me in a perspective to where I'm less inclined to doom scroll altogether. So this morning was a heavy dose of a uh, daily Catholic reflection, um, a Stoic reflection, a uh, video that I sent you that has a sort of a collection of George Harrison quotes, sort of yeah. about his philosophy of life and and broader things, and then uh, Deepak Chakra. So, so I sort of started my morning with about. A, an hour of that more or less. And, uh, and then I, and then I got ready and I got my coffee and I had my aforementioned vegan ham and cheese, everything bagel with uh, Vegemite. And here we are in a, in a great mood, ready to chat. And since last, I mean, obviously you and I chat almost every day, but since you were last on the podcast, quite a bit has occurred. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> a couple of things, you know, just minor, minor things like you nearly like, died. 
Yeah, you know, I, I nearly died, and I took a nap for like a week, and y'all keep saying it, it was a week, but I swear it was two weeks. But maybe it was maybe like just ten, it was like ten days. Okay, all right, because I keep yeah. hearing a week, and I'm like, I swear it was longer than that, but it maybe just felt like an eternity. I mean, they said it was going to be like three months, so ten, yeah, that's ten days is less. So, so for those who listen, I'm sure I've mentioned on the podcast. I know I have mentioned on the podcast, but but um, we haven't had a chance to talk with Jason since this all occurred in June. You were involved in a car accident in which, as I understand it correctly, uh, another driver decided to um, they didn't want to wait at a light that you were turning left on, and yes. so they they decided to hop into the oncoming traffic lane um, and try to bypass. I don't know how many cars were behind you, two to three, uh, including you. And T-boned you going roughly 70 miles an hour. Is that roughly what occurred? Um, <clears throat> I think they might have been. Yeah, I think they were probably going about like 60 miles an hour or something. I've, it's kind of impossible to say. Right. I didn't notice. Like, <laughs> I was just uh, I was just going. And then uh, the next thing I knew, I... Well, then I then I was a soldier in World War Two, Part Two. I was actually a pilot, right? And then, uh, and then I woke up in a hospital. So this is so, insane. So did they, you? They must have hit my car pretty hard. You know? Yeah. Well, if you've seen the photos, that's an understatement. Yeah. Did you like? Was there ever? I mean, you might not remember it, but but to your best of your recollection, was there ever a moment where there was a, a second of, I'm about to get hit by a car bracing for impact or was it completely like you're making a turn and then you're in world war two part two as a fighter pilot then you're stationed in canada which is a hotbed zone for world war two part two action yeah. and and then you woke up in a in a clearly uh, an army hospital that was yeah. in fact not in canada what's really weird is like i actually i mean everything you said is exactly right only i also don't remember um that taking that turn because i was turning from a well, anybody who knows Los Angeles, I was turning from um, Alvarado into a neighborhood, mm-hmm. and uh, there were four there were four cars behind me, and this this person decided to pass me on the on the left side while I was turning, you know, through oncoming traffic, uh, jumping out ahead of three other cars. So whatever, but I don't remember any of that. I remember that whole night up until I left, you know, to go home. And I don't know. That's it. So my my uh, my consciousness has completely blocked out the accident. So I, I have no idea how which any is, of it went. Yeah, which is wild because, of course, you know, for the average layman who hears a story like this, their their first thoughts go to what we've seen in the movies. Right? It's it's so apparent to me that so much of how we view life is completely dictated by the way it's presented in, in cinema and in television. Because yeah. Upon hearing it, your first thought goes to, well, did you see a white light? Was there like some sort of like crazy? Because I was listening to the the podcast that you did on your podcast, The Regrettable Century, your first one back with your brother Christopher. And this is something I didn't even know, but that you actually flatlined. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. Well, while, while between the accident and when I saw you the next morning, I think the next afternoon. Yeah, I am. Um... Actually, I I saw the surgeon like uh you know right before I was before I left California like whenever they gave me the go ahead to start walking again, mm-hmm. and he was like completely convinced that I wasn't going to make it. 
you know, he was like, it's really good to see you. I was the one that did all your surgery. And uh, I just, I didn't expect you would make it even past the first couple of days, you know? And, and I, I kind of, in a way I didn't, right. Cause I flatlined like right, right away. Um, and then since then, uh, I guess, I guess I've bounced back, you know, pretty effectively. I mean, I, eh, I still don't really run very well. I, you know, <laughs> literally what run you mean? Not like yeah, machine like, runs, but like sprinting. You're not going to be doing any CrossFit challenges. Yeah. In the near future. I ran across the street, um, the other day, which is the third time. It's the first time it didn't hurt. I was right. still very awkward and I, it was like, I was running in a way that like I was not familiar with the body I was in, <laughs> um, but it didn't hurt. So that's like a major improvement. You know, I mean, for, for again, m- most people didn't witness this outside of your, your closest family and friends. But, <clears throat> you know, when I first saw you, which was uh, hours after your accident, I think your accident was some like Tuesday at one in the morning or midnight or something. And probably by the time I got there it was mid afternoon that same day. Obviously, you were in a coma for 10 days. You were asleep. Um, and you had already, by that point, illustrated some movement in your left arm, um, but very little in your right, which which you're right-handed. Yeah. And over the course of those 10 days, obviously, there was, you know, we're hanging on every minor improvement. Like, oh, um, you heard your mom's voice and you responded. Or the thing, the thing I'll never forget this, probably as long as I live the moment when I, I had the most faith that you'd be okay to some degree was, um, you know, those, uh, the, the little plastic, I guess they're for taking a piss in, you know, the plastic buckets that they have for, for folks, or maybe it's, yeah. I, I don't know what it's for. <clears throat> one of these. Uh, I, well, I didn't see it. So it was either one of those or one of the, the broader ones, but they're one of the little plastic, you know, piss buckets that they got there. I'm sure that's the technical term for it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the, the, the nurse's station, someone dropped one. And you know, when you drop a, when you drop a, a piece of plastic like that, it bounces all over the damn place. And, you know, it causes far more of a ruckus than one would think if you just looked at the item and said, I'm about to drop this. And you responded like you're, you, you, we're in a room with the door mostly closed. And as soon as I heard that banging around of that plastic bucket bouncing, you started moving and like you got, you seemed agitated and and then eventually like you calmed down, but I was like, okay, so he's, he definitely can hear stuff. He can definitely hear stuff. He's definitely responding to stuff. This is a positive sign. So I knew the mind was there somewhere. Um, we just didn't know when you'd come back. And, and I, I as you illustrated with the, we're talking to the surgeon even everyone's most optimistic hopes were were blown away and expectations were, 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 you know, leaped over because you pretty much woke up as soon as they took you off the induced aspect of the coma. And um, aside from being a little confused about uh, your experience during World War II Part Two and Canada – you, you, you pretty much in very, um, su- you know, successful order, gotten your faculties back, and and to the, the to the fact that you're running, even as awkwardly as you may be, coming from a place where you were bedridden or wheelchair ridden for most of the summer, with two metal 
prongs sticking out of your yeah. hips, like you see, like building your pelvis back together. Like that's incredible. It, it's a, it's. I have said this multiple times. It's a miracle that you're alive, that you went through all this, and that not only that are you alive, but you're. What do you? What would you consider yourself? Eighty five percent back, ninety percent back. Uh, yeah, something like that. Like I definitely don't feel like I'm. I'm at my like full capacity, either cognitively or physically, but like it isn't not at all unreasonable that I will get back to where I should be like with um really no interruptions. Like it's just, it's, it's very believable. Like every week there is like a measurable improvement. And in fact, actually like um physically, like I, I, whatever, I have a gym membership now. I go, I go three times a week twice with Mm -hmm. a trainer and there's like a body scan that they that they do every so often so you can track your progress if and i just did my second one and like it looks like a different human being is just visibly like the improvement is remarkable just just looking at it well and and it looks like the other one Mm -hmm. the other one looks like a very old man who was in an accident right Well, it's again, I don't want to be glib about this, but we've joked about it. You you leading up to the accident often talked about wanting to sort of reset things and yeah. you know, kind of unhappy on the path that you were going and or at least unsatisfied. Yeah. And you 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 needed a, a pivot of some sort. I I would presume you this was not what you intended uh, <laughs> in, in so much as a way of of of, you know changing course in your life but the fact that you're i don't think you've ever had a gym membership have you uh no i've never even been inside a gym before until until the the day that i went to my first session like i have no idea i don't i i don't know what i mean now i kind of know but at first i didn't even know like what what a normal behavior was like how much eye contact do you make when you accidentally look in the in a person's direction you know depends on where in the gym you are jason yeah, I guess so. Uh, if you're in the locker room, you stare deeply into their eyes. It's just <laughs> always been my technique. And if someone uh, gets upset, you you stab the biggest person in in the room so that they all respect you afterward. Yeah, well, it it definitely did feel like that at first, and I was like, God, I there's not a chance I would ever <clears throat> go in here if I didn't have a trainer. And uh, even now, like I I really like going on the days when I have a trainer, and the one day I go without, I'm just like. Yeah, I don't know what to do. You know, it still feels like a, I don't feel like I belong there. You know? Yeah. No, I do. We Jess and I just started going back to the gym last week, and uh, it's funny that you mentioned. You know, we were talking about like at, at this point in your life, you're like you know, 85 percent back to normal. But at your age, at my age, that's probably the best you could hope for anyway. Yeah. So that's actually like 100 percent if you if you adjust for the sliding scale of age, because in the time in the week that I've been at the gym, we can some change. I strained a calf muscle. I actually felt it pop <clears throat> while doing a kick. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, and I have something going on with my left. That was my right leg. I have something going on with my right foot. I don't know if it's plantar, which I have had in the past, or some sort of deep bruise, or maybe my body's just like, what are you doing? Not being high on a couch. This is unusual for you. I, I don't really know what the but, – but, but feeling my body getting back into it, feeling the soreness, it's just like, oh, oh this is – weird and awkward and and thankfully i have i'm going to the gym with someone with my partner and that makes the process easier yeah but if you go into it first off if you if you have no experience there it it's like it's like learning a language 
to learn what the machines do, to learn in what order you do them, uh, to, to learn how to stretch property before that, uh, all those things. Like, luckily, I had a period of time where I was super, go, super into going to the gym. And so I, I still have at least that, that background to draw from when I go to like, you know, plan out what we're going to do on any given day. But for sure, like if you've never been and this is brand new to you and this is like an, a new introduction into your life, it can be it can be foreign, but it can also be really useful. Like even though you, you've been sort of blessed to be a naturally thin person your whole life, it's probably not the worst thing in the world for you to do to focus on your health in a more meaningful yeah. way than like. I look good enough in the mirror. This is good enough to go. Yeah, definitely. And like, um, I mean, it's now I'm now I'm at a point where like, whatever, my metabolism's changed a lot since the accident. And like, mm-hmm. I eat a lot less than I, I, now I have to eat when I'm not hungry. Mm, um, interesting. And I, and I have to like watch things that I eat a little bit more now too. It's really mm. weird. So you want to eat less, but uh, when you say you have to watch to eat, you mean like you'll notice if you're if you're eating cakes, you'll kind of notice that as opposed to something more healthy, whereas before it was negligible notice. Because I remember like years yeah. ago, you used to you used to be like, oh, if I look in the mirror and I look a little soft, I'll do some push ups for a couple of weeks. I'll do some sit ups for a couple of weeks, and then I'll be good. Oh, yeah, I don't think that's true anymore. I mean. <laughs> Part of it is like muscle atrophy, like Mm -hmm. for months of not using them at all. But also part of it is just like, it's going to be really hard from now, from now on to like get back to where, where I want them to be. And also just to to stay there or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah, it's definitely a reset. And like in most ways, well, in, in the ways we've discussed, it's not positive, but it's a, it's not negative. I, I, whatever i'm not i'm not unhappy about it just because it's gone so well mm-hmm. but yes yeah, definitely different i have well, like a different i have a different body now yeah which is which is really interesting because this all ties in to what i was watching this morning um in particularly there was a, a video it's about 10 minutes in length from deepak and he's he's talking about um everything that we perceive is memory including this conversation we're having now, by the time I hear your voice, even at the rate that the speed of sound moves, it's in the past, even if, if by seconds or milliseconds, right? Um, looking into a computer screen and seeing your face via the camera, um, which is moving at the speed of light, even as fast as that moves, it's in the past. There is a delay of some sort. And that's true for practically if not every bit of sense that we have everything that we smell takes time to process um, everything that we see everything that we hear everything that we're seeing in life is the past and we only know it's real we can only really make sense of it because we have recollection which of course opens a whole nother can of worms in terms of like where does that initial recollection come from but Looking at life as everything as a memory, everything as something different. Um, it really drove home to me that that and I, I don't remember I said this before the podcast, or I'll say it again probably throughout the podcast that all things must pass, all things do pass, all things change, all things end, all things begin. We as energetic beings are cyclical. 
And so you are in a new body. Yeah, You're, I guess that's true. And and you would be in a new body regardless of this accident. This might be um, so much more traumatic and dramatic that it's an affront on your senses in such a way that you can't deny or ignore how much of a different person you are today versus, you know, pr- you know, before the summer started. But, but in many regards, we're always and constantly different people than we were prior. And I think that's really a hopeful perspective to have because if we're always different people physically, you know, through, through the, the death and rebirth of ourselves um, to changes in our appearance um, either either intentional or unintentional. But if we're constantly different beings as time progresses, then doesn't that open up quite a bit of options for the future? Or you're never bound by who you are. Yeah. Because who you are, by the time you recognize that you're there, that you are that person, that person's a, a memory. I mean, yes. Uh Certain people in your life might make you feel as though that's who you are, you know, but that's why, um, that's why Sartre said hell is other people. It's not meant to be like the company of other people is hellish. Sometimes. I mean, it can be, but <laughs> it's, it's really just that the company of other people is what maintains whatever you consider hell to be, you know, like mm. if you would like to make a big change in yourself and you spend, you know, you put in lots of work and then the people who've known you for like five years, they can't, they can't see that. And then they start to, they, they continue to see you in whatever old way, which is not you anymore. And like, that can make you feel like it's true. And like you haven't changed or whatever, but really it's, it's entirely those people whose opinions or their vision of you is what's not changed. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, yeah. that's, I guess that's why people have to like, you know, part of growing is finding other people who are also growing and cutting out other people. And I don't know. I mean, maybe there's like a more, there's a better way of saying it, but that's all true to some extent. Yeah. Well, if you, you know, if you believe in the term God as sort of an acronym for generate order and destruction, right. And that is representative of the cycle of life. Things are born, things exist in an, in an order within the universe. They fit into the fabric of it. And then they perish and then they are reborn again. Um, It makes sense, everything you're saying. And it can look callous sometimes when you have to come to the realization that certain people in your life no longer fit who you are, that what was once a match no longer is. I mean, here's a very silly example. When I was a kid, I mean, even when I was a young adult, I wore a size 11 shoe. Now I wear a size 12. And... I'm already an adult in both instances. So you would think that I've stopped growing. Certainly we can see it in weight loss, right? I used to be a size 30 and I'm like a size 34. Like there are things about us that physically always change in, in perpetual motion. And just like it would be foolish for me to hang on to an old pair of shoes that used to fit me when I was 23 at a size 11 and to try to shove my now size 12 foot into them would be would be asinine no one would no one would consider doing that or or if you've gained weight and you're trying to shove yourself into those size 30 jeans that you're four sizes too big for whatever it may be like that's an that's that's ridiculous no no one 
no one would ask you to do that, hopefully. And so I I think that when it comes to the network of people and experiences that, that we surround ourselves with, those must also evolve with time. Those must also become, should adjust in alignment with who we are at that given time. And it can, it can apply to all things, not just people, but music you listen to, um, movies you kind of like to watch, um, how you spend your day, people you're attracted to. Uh, I mean, there's a million different things that just constantly evolve. And I, and I have always found that the, the, the strongest, most enduring relationships, be them friendships or romantic, are the ones that are able to evolve at a similar click in a similar direction to you. I mean, yeah, that's really well put. I don't even know what to add to it. You know, it's just, it's kind of nice to hear, you know? It's so like, you, you, you ought to have a podcast. Uh, well, I've heard that a couple of times, so we'll see. Maybe, who knows what the future will bring? Um, do you, so like with, with the changes that have occurred, uh, not only to yourself physically, but spiritually. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and again, we've, we've had many talks in various stages of your healing, but where do you find yourself right now with, with having experienced death in a way that most people can't comprehend literal death. You, you literally died for moments. You're like Nikki yeah. six in that regard. You're in, you're in, you're in short company, you know, <laughs> it's true. I always did want to be like Nikki six and this is the only way that I didn't want to be like him, but you know, you, you have to take it all. Exactly. You never know. You, you should have been more specific in your hopes and dreams. Yeah. Um, but having gone through that experience, having gone through, even, even if there was no, you know, bright light and angel chorus or, or demons, even for that matter, just going through something that has fundamentally rocked your basic behaviors what today, as it stands, what, what is your, your, your sort of view on things? Where are you, personally standing from an existential standpoint that's a good question um i don't i don't entirely know how to answer it i think one thing is that i just uh i spend a lot more time pensively contemplating things and a lot less time making up my mind about anything Mm. um and in in a lot of ways like some of the practices that i've had that i had in the past i'm still working on trying to like develop them again you know, just to like break out of this mold of a, for a long time, I thought <clears throat> I basically treated my, my conscious mind as a working a certain way. And like, a, you know, like whenever you meet somebody and they just say something like, a, I could never meditate, you know, because whatever yeah. my, my mind is too crazy. And like, that's the whole reason for it. Mm-hmm. For a long time, that was also me, but it was like, I wouldn't accept it because I knew that that was like a thing that people said rather than a thing that actually was, you know, Mm -hmm. but in a lot of ways, I'm also just a lot of the time I'm still working on that, you know, just trying to like get, bring some discipline back. And a lot of it is just like, I spend a lot more time in, in reflection. Right. So in a way I've been reset and, and I'm still kind of like getting into or it's still in the first phase or whatever, but I no longer have, um, I don't really have goals other than just movement. So like, I'm a lot more patient, a lot more, um, 
uh, I don't really know exactly what I want to say here. A lot more, um, yeah, I'm just a lot more patient with myself and with everything else, too. I don't think that should be understated. That's a huge thing um, that most people lack is patience. I, I just started, I think I shared this to you yesterday. I just started reading a book that I've had forever. And I've probably read it before, but I don't remember because I've had it that long, which is like Everyday Serenity. And the purpose of the book is to just give you some little things to contemplate at the top of your day or whenever you read it, and then to put into practice and to hopefully give you some perspective. And one of the things that I was reading was just, you know, the simple exercise was to take some time to stare at a flower and to really look at it and examine it because it's a thing that we understand to be beautiful or to smell good or to be generally good. But for most people at the speed that we move at, there's very little depth beyond that. It's an acceptance rather than a realization that a rose is beautiful. It's like a rose is beautiful because I've been told that and because it's what you give your partners on Valentine's day. And I've seen in movies, once again, kind of defines how we perceive things, but how often do we actually sit and, and determine that for ourselves? Because you might stare at a rose and determine that you fucking hate it. That, that that it's just not for you because it's maybe it's too flimsy or perhaps you prefer sunflowers, whatever it may be. The inclusion of patience and contemplation into your life, a slowing down, if you will, yeah, is um, I think very essential to your healing. And I, I think for most of us, or at least for me, I'll speak for myself, when I'm trying to understand the human mind. It's most easy to understand it in terms of electronics because I kind of grew up in that era and I've seen the matrix. And so I can perceive things and and understand things as software updates and things of that nature. Um, Right before your accident, my computer crapped out and I had to get it rebooted, refreshed. And that meant it it wiped pretty much everything that didn't exist before um, that that I hadn't been able to save. And I had to upload programs all over to it once again. And that's a time-consuming process. And what I found is that I would add programs back onto my laptop as um, I needed them, right? Because yeah. my laptop up until that point was a collection of years of various programs, files, et cetera, that I had used. I've heard... I've heard it a very similar way that psychedelics can be that that way as well. It can sort of be a hard a hard drive wipe in a way, and you start to put things back onto your desktop. Now you could either put more like my desktop, which is a clusterfuck right now that I need to clean up, and you could just fall right back in that habit of overcrowding your desktop with just random files, or you can or you can you can start to build better habits about organizing them, putting them in their proper folders, contextualizing them. And I think that perhaps maybe that's that process for you, right? Like, yeah, you, you, let's see, we're in November. So it's been what, five months, six months, almost since your accident, more or less. It's been exactly five months. Okay. You haven't really had a need to run much less the capacity, but you haven't had a need to run. I would assume. No. Right. So like adding running back into your quiver for lack of a better phrase, is sort of determined on, um, 
your own desire to rebuild your skills, but also necessity, right? Like if the cops were after you, you, I don't, you may not be great at it, but you would probably f remember how to run at a faster pace than, um, you know, I should try jogging across the street and sort of doing it more as more of a conscious rather than subconscious act. That's probably true. Actually, the first time I ran was because uh, the this car was um, going faster than I thought it was. And it's like, oh, I, I have to get off the, uh, off the road. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was not conscious at all. I just did it. And then afterwards, I was like, huh, I just ran, you know, and then and then later it started to hurt a little bit, started to ache. Right. And, and a lot of that feels like I kind of um, I mentally ushered in pain. You know, it was like mm. it was it was like whenever you watch this Bugs Bunny cartoon and for like a oh no, like Wiley Coyote. Yeah. Whenever mm -hmm. he's like go, goes off the edge of the cliff, but he doesn't realize it. So he doesn't fall. And then once <laughs> right. he realizes it, then he falls. That was kind of what it was like where, where it was like, oh, I ran. Interesting. Huh. That's the first time I've run in five months. And then like the more I thought about it, it was like, oh, I'm kind of sore. And like, oh, that's kind of a sharp pain. And really like the you know whatever i've done it twice since then and since then it doesn't hurt at all and part of it's just i don't think about it at all mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so yeah in a way it was just like it, because i needed to i was able to do it and that was it isn't it and so i've never made this connection between wiley coyote and meditation up until this point but <laughs> it's as clear as day to me now because um when we talk about mindfulness, when we talk about being present or meditation or how, whatever the, the current buzzword is as it relates to any sort of um, being in the moment, the second we recognize that our brains are empty is the moment we start, it immediately becomes filled. And then we fall, right? Then, then at that moment, the moment's lost and you're sort of back into trying to get back to it perhaps. And, you know, the more practice you have, the more you can do it. But most of us, because we, we, because we are constantly living in the past or the present, or sorry, the past or the, or the future, anxious about the future, regretful about the past, that we very rarely are just in the moment, just absorbing data, just yeah. taking it in. And when people say often, um, well, I, I can't meditate because my mind is, um, it's too busy or it's too active or I can't clear it. I think that one of the reasons is that we have such a, a limited understanding or an acceptance of what meditation is. Yeah. And, and in that moment where there was a car kind of barreling towards you and your body sprinted, ran, moved quickly in ways that it hadn't in months. Um, that is sort of a form of meditation in a way. Like your body just was. It it sensed clear and present danger and it responded and it acted. And I doubt, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I doubt you were thinking about what to eat later in that yeah. moment of, of realizing that that car is traveling a bit faster than you anticipated and that you need to get out of the way of immediate danger. Now, maybe after that, then your mind, then once you realized your mind was like, oh, I haven't done this. Oh, there's pain associated with not using muscles in that manner for a long period of time and to, and to do it in such an extreme way, right? It's not like you were jogging lightly. You didn't stretch beforehand. It was just like pure instinct. But in yeah. that instinctual moment, you were as present as you ever could be because you had That's to. That's right. Yeah. 
that's a good way to put it. Um, I don't even, I can't even imagine like that I would have ever, I don't know. Like, I don't know what, what would have made me tr- start running otherwise, you know, right. but like in that moment, I, it was, it, I was entirely put together and I was, I knew what to do and it wasn't even like I did know what to do. It was more like I just could do it and I just discovered what to do as I did it, you know? Mm-hmm. Huh. Like, it's kind of like Wile e. Coyote, only it's good instead of, you know, he would always just fall. He's always okay, though, so it's not that bad either. Very durable, yeah. coyotes are. Yeah, that's that's definitely um, what I learned Yes, from that, from that cartoon. <laughs> I nearly died, and I learned that coyotes are tough son of a bitches. <laughs> that should be the um, name of your book, about your, about your memoirs. Um, yeah, actually... I mean, I might have to write it. <laughs> That's uh, true. It helps. You tell you what, you start writing and I'll start podcasting. Okay. I'll we'll check good back plan. in in a year and see what we're doing. Yeah. Um, then I will come on your podcast and I'll talk about my book. Um, Perfect. That's a plan. There was um, just talking about this, staying in this, in this moment of being in the moment. One of the things, when I was listening to Deepak talk about just like everything that we're sensing is a memory, is recollection, it's a response, it's reactionary, everything. Everything from our touch to our smell to our hearing to our sight to our memory, everything is lapsed, is in, is, is coming to us in lapsed time. And I was starting to think about to myself, like what would, if, the, if you could ever catch up, right? If you could ever truly, if your mind could ever truly be like in sync with things as they were occurring, what would that be like? And the closest yeah. thing that I could draw again, I just, you know, sometimes when I mention this movie, it's like, number one, I already commented about how everything, every way that we look at life is sort of, at least in the 20th century, seems to be buoyed on how it's presented in movies. I also think that this is one of those movies that like dumb, smart people tend to refer back to a lot um, because it's, it's presented in such a way that's a little easier to understand. But for the sake of explaining, I'll refer back to the Matrix once again. And the scene where Neo starts to see the world as binary uh, code rather than agents and walls and Kung Fu and bullets and all that jazz. Like none of that is really existing. He's seeing everything as what it is, which is just code. If you want to approach it from a purely um, modern scientific method, if you were to look at the painting that is life, like a Rembrandt, it would look like a series of atoms and protons and electrons just wildly buzzing around in no discernible order to the naked eye, I would presume. And yeah, I, and probably. I, and I wonder that if we're ever actually present, if we could ever maintain that level of presentness that we have when danger is afoot or we happen to get lost in the moment and we're just taking in things, if we could actually perceive everything as light or or energy or or the the oneness of all like could we just see the world for what it really is which is like this pouring of energy from a singular infinite source before it has shaped been shaped before it has form before it has smell and sense, and all the things that we remember and all the things that we're thinking about in in um reaction to this 
Like, could we ever really perceive that? Could we ever get to that point and maintain it? And perhaps that's the great work and, and perhaps that's, that's enlightenment or whatever you want to call it. But um, it's really interesting to think about that being sort of the, the end goal, or at least the thing to strive for. Yes. <laughs> um, again, I don't, I don't really have much. I, I don't want to, I don't want to add to that. I don't have anything to add to it. I just, I agree. It is, um, in I, actually, in a lot of ways, you know, um, when people have asked like, you know, Oh, you died. Like, what did you, uh, you know, coming out the other side, did you, did you have any like spiritual experience of any kind? Um, and I've said no. And I guess from on the, in the first order, I would say, no, I haven't. But in the second one, like, um, what you just said rings so much more true mm. now that maybe I'd have like very little matters in the, um, very little matters to me in a surface level way anymore. Like, a few things matter a lot, but things that are happening don't matter at all. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess in that sense, yeah, I really did have a spiritual kind of awakening experience, whatever. But it's really just allowed me to be more at peace with, you know, what is, and that's in, you know, in quotes, what what is, but like this, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Radio air um, quotes. Yeah. But beyond that, I don't know. I don't have much to add. Well, it's funny because again, I'm gonna I'm gonna do exactly what I said we all do, which is reference another movie. I was watching Don Juan DeMarco, um, night before last. Have you seen that older movie, Johnny Depp, Marlon Brando? I've been on a big Marlon Brando kick lately. I I I have seen it, but like not in a very very long time. It's a very charming movie. Um, it's not generally vaulted as one of his greatest hits um even though it's, it's quite enjoyable and just seeing him interact with marlon brando is is pretty fun but there's a moment with the, the crux of the story is um johnny depp's character is someone who believes he's don juan DeMarco, a spanish italian greatest lover of all time who um is living like he's in like 1900s mexico with he's got the the wide broom hat and he's got the sword and the, the riding boots and the cape, et cetera. And Martin Brando plays his doctor who has 10 days to try to figure out if this individual, this young man should be um, institutionalized or let free. And over the course of their interaction, it's, it just, it's a, it's a device to tell the backstory of this character and to ultimately leave the question to the audience to decide. And, there's a moment where the two characters are interacting and Depp's character says, you know, you're asking me if I understand that this is a, a mental institution. Yes, I understand that I can, I'm aware of that, but how is that any more true than me believing that this is your villa and that you're my host and that you're not a doctor, but you're Don Octavius and you or yourself are a great lover. Like how is what you're saying, even though I understand, I can see, I can perceive it, but how is that any more real? than my interpretation of the same scenario, hmm. right? 
Um, you could certainly look at, uh, if you want a, a little bit more of a uh, intellectual heady movie, you could look at the, uh, the book or the movie Life of Pi, which, which examines the very same question, which is that is a, real, uh, is a utilitarian reality any more real than an enchanted one? Hmm. So when you talk about your accident and you say like you, you have perspective that perhaps you didn't have before or you have patience in a way that maybe you didn't quite in the same way have before. To me, I don't see how that framing it in that way um, is any more real than saying it's just, you had a profound spiritual experience because perspective and patience um, perspective and, and contemplation of the way the universe works of letting go of a lot of the anxieties that we sort of inflict ourselves with that to me is profoundly spiritual. I mean, it's like the goal of like every major religion to sort of get to some version of that. Right. Yeah. And also like, um, if we're just talking in terms of what the, the, whatever the hard sciences or whatever, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of debate about the role of observation in determining what is a, you know, real and that you in in a lot of ways you can't say that like anything is objectively real you know um i guess i would invite whatever listener to the listener who is interested in in this topic to check out Ooh, i can't think of a single book a a (laughs) bunch of different books about quantum physics right because the there there maybe isn't a lot of objectively existing things like outside of our interaction with those things. And so, you know, what is real? That's, it's very debatable actually. You know, what, what really is like objectively real might not even be a thing at all. Right. Because we could, we could, from a certain perspective, we could take it all the way back to what Deepak was saying, which is that everything that we're experiencing is not real. It's, it's sort of a interpretation of sorts. It's a memory of sorts. It's a dream in a way where we're interpreting things that we, our senses are perceiving and we ignore the things that our senses, our immediate five senses can't perceive generally. And we assign it reality, but it's really just, it's just observation. It's perception. Um, Did you ever read not not so much the movie in this instance, but did you ever read the book, the lost world? Um, Michael Crichton. No, I, I actually like, uh, I have this memory of having this book and I took it with me on a camping trip and I carried it around and then I gave it back, but I never actually opened it. So like, I'm pretty sure I never read it because I would, I would have a memory of that and not just of carrying the book around, you know? Right. I, I mean, it's funny the things that you remember because I very, in mentioning it, which I've not thought about that book in ages. I distinctly remember finding it in the library of my high school. Like I can, I can picture myself right as I'm talking to you, I can picture myself clearly walking. I could probably find it. Like if I went back to King high school in Corpus Christi, if that book is still where it was 20 odd years ago, I could probably find it. I could walk straight to it in this moment right now. And the only real strong thing of the book that I remember was the theme of whether or not it's possible to ever observe an environment without in its natural state 
or right yeah by by instance of there being an observer do you fundamentally change the environment like is your presence no matter how remote no matter how isolated you think you are from the environment that you're perceiving that you're recording that you're observing your presence irreparably changes that and adjusts it and and modifies it yeah i mean you know like it's this this is the kind of thing that really should challenge our kind of conception of everything that we do but that's also something we should just appreciate that like you are a part of what's happening and what's happening um without you it's it's not in some ways it's not happening or it's not happening you know independent of all these other factors like other people and uh they really should at least begin to to bring up questions about like how much more profound our connection is to each other to everything um then we then we treat it you know because we 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 just think of like oh this is a law that's a law now we know how this stuff happens and we move on and actually like all we really have is like a clear idea that really is not verifiable you know and we and we don't have any way of um i don't i don't really know how to put this um I mean, the only thing I'm really trying to say is that, like, just people should should be a lot more appreciative of the fact that they are a part of everything that's happening, and that they 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 participate in everything that's happening. And taking it like you know, whenever you hear this, people will joke around, like say, "Stop and smell the roses" or whatever. But like, actually do that. Like, yeah. actually stop and like really take in how much you are a part of your environment. Because Enjoy it, every sandwich. <laughs> it's true. You really should. Because uh, I don't really know what other purpose there is to life other than just to be a part of it and to like enjoy it and to make it enjoyable. That's it. That's all there is. Well, it's it's it should also, I hope, for anyone listening who's maybe questioning what their worth is to the world, their own personal worth, their own personal placement, their importance of the world. Um, the world doesn't exist without you yeah. from your perspective. The world That's... that you perceive good or bad or, or colors in between simply does not exist without your presence. It may exist in some other form in my observation of it or your observation of it or a stranger on the streets observation of it. But that life, that world that you live in and perceive every moment of your day, it ceases to exist the moment your your ego, your consciousness dissipates. Yeah. It exists in another way, in another form, because what we perceive is not its true form anyway, right? Mm -hmm. So the world that you live in literally only exists because you exist. You're responsible for everything in it. And the pressure of that can be enormous and yeah, it's I don't, too much for a lot of people to think about. Yeah. I don't ever, I was talking this morning with a friend of mine because he shared this video of this, you know, one of those smug conservative tw- twats. Um, 
you know, 25 year old telling people how to raise their children when they've never actually done anything in life. But we, the two of us started getting on this debate and, and my fundamental problem with the post was that she blamed um, how much we allow the government to tell us what to, you know, the government, the media, the corporations, the, the, the monolith, we, we, we cast our hope that they'll take care of everything for us. And we've certainly seen what kind of a job they quote unquote do. And the video sort of made the, the assertion that this is done out of complacency. Oh, we're complacent. The, the parents right. of gen uh, of millennials and Gen Z were lazy. We're complacent. We're spending too much. They didn't say this, but the, the assertion is that we're spending too much time on avocado toast and our, our pumpkin spice lattes. And we're not being, you know, true patriots, blah, blah, blah. Same rhetoric as always. But I contended that that's not why, even though I do believe that ultimately what this person is highlighting in terms of us putting our faith in someone else handling business for us is a fundamental issue that we should address. I, I, I very, very strongly disagree in the assertion of why that is. And I think that's really important. Right. And the analogy that I used to him was it's the difference between me saying you're the shit and me saying you're shit. Right. Those three letters in the word the are very important to the context of what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I think most people put their faith in um, figureheads, government officials, leaders of industry, technocrats, because the heaviness of the burden of knowing that the world is literally in your hands, that you are God poured into flesh and bone and cells and blood to perceive this thing itself shaped into a reality that as we know it, as we can understand it, that, that that's, that's your responsibility. Like you literally can think of it as being charged by God to go observe the world. Like you were a, I don't know, like you're a knight of the round table being told to explore some foreign land and to report back. And for most people, I think that that's just way too heavy, way too hard. And so they cast it to anyone else who's willing to say, I have the answers. I know how to lead us through this. You sit back and you don't worry. I got this. I don't think it's complacency. I think it's fear. And it's the the heaviness of the burden that is existence. To know, to get to a point to recognize that there is no one else who can solve the problems of the world out, outside of you. Now, it doesn't mean solely you, but outside that, that we could remove ourselves from the equation somehow, which is just not possible. Yeah. And, uh, what's troubling about that is that the idea of people having a little bit more control over their own lives, um, that's like foundational to, Mm -hmm. I don't know, most modern philosophies. They're all about like, you know, more agency, more responsibility, and so on, individually, collectively, and 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 yet at every turn. I mean, if you look around, I can't think of an example anywhere of anybody taking that responsibility. I think it's because it's terrifying. That's, that's so a great instead, way to describe it. So instead, you just have a a, a world of, you know, 
I don't know, whatever this world is, <laughs> whatever there is right now. And it's not really something to be proud of. No, I, um, you know, when we were recording this, it's, uh, what, four days after the midterm elections. Yeah. And, um, as of this morning to my recollection, nothing's been decided <laughs> like individual elections in some degree, but, but like in terms of like, um, you know, the, the direction of the country will go, whether or not it's going to be led by the uh, conservative, uh, the 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 conservative left or right rather, or the conservative left, there mm-hmm. there's still up to, for debate, right? Whether the the neoliberal economic system of running, you know, global running things is going to be run by people wearing red ties or blue ties, it hasn't been quite decided yet. Um, and I have been on the fence about voting my whole life. You know, some elections I have, some elections I haven't. But there always seems to be, and I, it blows my mind to this point that people are so, so optimistic. And I almost, in a way, envy it. I, I, I say this and I can understand how it could come off as condescending, but I don't mean it to be or, or to be demeaning. But I do really, in some ways, uh, admire the ability to be so optimistic that that the system that we have created to give us elected officials that can help run the the more global issues that we on an individual level maybe can't do on a day-to-day basis, the figureheads that are supposed to act in our stead, the um like that the simple act of like, you know, clicking a button and then posting on Instagram your sticker that I voted, that this is somehow gonna deliver us from this hellscape that we've built. And it's the bare minimum I suppose it's not the bare minimum. The bare minimum would be like would be the poster of the st- of the of the sticker on Instagram. But the but the just slightly above that, just a smidge above that, is the act of voting and this sort of overconfidence that this simple act can salvage democracy because democracy apparently was on the ballot. Did you know this? Apparently it was. Um, yeah, and also like it's not just like you know doing that makes you you know, you, you are doing this thing, but also like the amount of shaming for everybody who didn't do it is actually kind of astounding. Uh, Maybe it's just because I am with somebody who did not vote. I also objected. Um, you know, I'm registered in, in, in one state and I'm in another state and so on. And like, whatever, I just didn't, I just don't think it mattered very much. It doesn't feel like it matters. You know, I want it to matter though. I want these things to matter. I just don't think that they do. And I think that, you know, the way that we live and the way that we interact and what we say and what we stand for, that matters more. And then voting really should be like the last expression of it, but only if you have something to vote for, like in yeah. a, like in an objectively positive sense in the, in the sense of like, that's what I want. And uh, whatever. I don't see that right now. There is, um, uh, you know, you know me. I'm a, I'm a big proponent and and disciple of the Church of Saint Carlin, and he's got a bit. Where he talks about politicians and how, you know, he complains a lot about a lot of things in his act, but one thing you'll never hear him complain about is politicians, and the reasoning behind that is because, again, kind of to go back to what we were talking about earlier, that we have as humans this ability to divorce ourselves from the world that is buoyed by our very consciousness. And so um, 
cognitive dissonance, if, if you will, we believe that these leaders are different than us. Yeah. But he asked the questions, where do you think that these leaders came from? They didn't pass through a membrane from another dimension. They didn't fall from the heavens. They're people like you and me who went through American education systems, went to American colleges, worked at American jobs, have American wives. I mean, they may not all be American, but you know what I mean? They've been raised in the society that we live in. And he ends the joke that this is the best that we can do. That the people that you see running for office, that this is the very best that we can produce within the system that we have to produce these people. Right. And, and to just continuously vote for these same kind of people over and over and over again, seems to just be feeding a machine that is not designed to serve in our best interest. There's another podcast I listened to with Duncan Trussell, where he's talking about um, candidates. Specifically, they're talking about um, um, presidential candidates, but it really applies for all of them. And, and Duncan Trussell was saying like, what if, imagine that you built, that you loved apples and you just loved apples and you wanted to have the best apple possible. So you're like a scientist and you developed the best machine that could create that, that could pick out of an orchard of apples the two best apples, like the top of the top of the apples. And you uh you could hand this apple, this other apple, to a friend, and you could enjoy these apples together, right? Because you just love apples. But then you you fire up the machine and it kicks out these two rotted, maggot-filled, worm-filled, deflated, brown, black, rotted apples, two rotted apples. And rather than say to yourself, the machine doesn't work, although I would add that the machine does work, just not the way that we, that benefits us. It works exactly as those who designed it uh, for the purpose of why they designed it. It works perfectly. But for us and for what we believe yeah. the machine should do, it's horribly broken. But instead of understanding that the machine is broken, we argue with our friend that our apple is the best apple and their apple is the shitty apple. Because it's easier for us to believe that someone else is picking a rotten apple than to acknowledge that we've been handed two bad apples any which way you cut it. Right. And we've divorced ourselves from this whole process. And if I combine those two thought processes and I ask myself, well, if the politicians that we love or hate come from the society that we live in, and this is the best that we can do, and this is what the machine is going to pick for us, then isn't the only respectable thing to do opt out and focus our attention on yeah. changing society on a smaller level, on a local level, on a, on a more direct level, I guess is a better way to say it. Um, Cause I don't want to put limitations on what someone can directly affect. I mean, we're doing this podcast and who knows we could reach thousand people, but in, in a more direct path in a more direct way so that our society adjusts and changes so that perhaps we can not only produce better apples, but we could produce a machine that that is a better way of selecting how we run things to the best benefit of all. And I don't know if we could do this on a top-down strategy. This is like everyone on the left, we all mock the trickle-down economics. But I don't we I don't know that anyone has ever stopped to think about trickle-down politics as as a whole mm-hmm. and whether or not that's an effective way to bring about positive change. Yeah, I would kind of like to see all of the people I know talk, who spend so much time talking about the elections and whatever to focus some of that energy um, on a more person-person basis because I, I think what we would find is that 
um, a they would have to learn very different ways of interacting with the world, mm-hmm. and b um they might disagree they might disagree with each other a lot less, you know, about mm-hmm. what to do and what needs to be done and so on. And then you know, because I I do think that like you know mass politics needs to exist. But I think that the basis for for a mass politics doesn't yet exist or doesn't exist anymore or whatever. And I think that is the basis is just not starting way up here. It's starting somewhere where you can like kind of impact something. Where well, you know, um unexpectedly we have a, an ally in this proposition. Um Comrade Musk is has taken it upon himself to tear down social media so that we can be forced into person-to-person interaction once again. Yeah. Um, it's actually kind of the most hilarious and best thing I, that I know of right now is is whatever is happening with Twitter. All these, the people, all these people are leaving Twitter for whatever other platforms. Other platforms uh, that, st- that, sh- that steal your information and communication and share it to third-party capitalist corporations so they can sell you bullshit you don't need and make you think in a way that you wouldn't normally think. Yeah. Okay. Just want to make sure, but it's not eight bucks, right? But it's not eight bucks and it's not controlled by a person whose personal life you yet know about, you know? Oh, I've heard stuff. Cause once you do know about the, the people who own things and make decisions and once you know about their personal lives, um, they're not, they're not going to look a lot better, you know? Well, no, because they're well. First off, they may may in fact be quite worse. But also, again, just like we we're talking about with politicians, they come from the same societies that we do. Right. So why would you presume that they would be vastly different? I mean, there will be some uh, obvious um, differences, but relative to the larger population, you're going to have your percentage of people who are total shitbags and. You're going to have some population of people who are just jerks and you're going to have some population of people who are just sort of self-absorbed. And and you might even occasionally get a Tom Hanks, but for the most part, you're going to get a subsection of our broader society, except that generally speaking, in order to amass such wealth, one has to have certain qualities that most people would find to be undesirable to be around. Yeah. I think that's the reason why the uh, that looking at a more direct level is a, is very unattractive to people because then they would have to, they would have to put more of themselves on the line. And uh, at the same time, it's also more attractive or it is to me because uh, there are a lot fewer um, incredibly wealthy, incredibly out of touch uh, shit bags in your, within at least your, at least in my personal um yeah. Perif- periphery. I've never met one, you know. Yeah, I'm not even sure if I've met a million. I'm sure I've met a million. I definitely have met a millionaire because I work in film, so I'm, I've definitely worked met millionaires. It's never been something I'm mindful of, though. And yeah. and I and again, rather than focus on this sort of top down view of the world where you're trying to change a select few in hopes that it changes the broader sort of way of living and, and, and rights that we have. Um, there seems to be just a, a total disconnect that we're basically trying to do this by being isolated from one another on these, on these digital social town hall platforms. Um, 
but we're not actually hanging out. We're not actually spending time with one another. We're not actually like sitting at a coffee shop, having a proper debate or conversation on any of these matters that we have completely and totally isolated any sort of spiritual outlook in the way that we look at the world because we're so, we're so um, traumatized in some regards, sometimes of our own, of our own doing. We're so traumatized by whatever relationship we had with Christianity, largely, generally, could yeah. be Judaism, could be um, Islam, but, but mostly it's, I, I hear Christianity as being the sort of determining traumatic uh, event in one's life that, that casts them to object to any and all spiritual or philosophical outlooks on life beyond whatever the scientist told us, which is just another way of saying the leader told me, big brother told me, right? Not to say that, that, that listening to medical professionals or scientific professionals are, is inherently bad, but if you believe that politicians are rotten apples born of our rotten system, then you would certainly at least have a healthy distrust or, or, or at least, um, um, lack of wholesale buying into skepticism of all leaders and figureheads and personalities who tell us how to do things. And, and if you do, rather than going into weird lizard person territory, I would, I would think that the best way to object to this is to look within oneself and to write it to clean your own house and to write and to create and to reconnect your own relationship with God or the universe or the environment or whatever, however you want to phrase it that feels best for you, find that deeper connection to the world around us physically first, uh, in a natural way first, then expanding that to the people in our neighborhoods, our, our literal physical neighbors, most of which people have never met or talked to on any regular basis. Yeah. To find time to see our friends in person to break bread with them, to go on walks with them, to have these deep discussions, do something beyond just entertain. Like the worst date in the world is going to a movie. And that's like the number one first date, right? That's what yeah. everyone does. Like we, this person that you want to have a um, intimate relationship with, sexual relationship with, uh, physiological relationship with, emotional relationship with, the first thing you do is you take them to a movie where you sit in silence next to each other for two hours. And, you know, best case scenario, it spawns conversation after the fact. And perhaps maybe you had dinner beforehand. But for those two hours, it's like it's like a metaphor for social media. We're next to each other, but we're so far apart. Yeah. It's like being isolated together. Exactly. Um, before I forget, because after we hang up here, I have to go walk to tech to meet Chris and walk back. Because it's part of my routine is to have to walk like three miles a day. And then I have to go to the gym. So that's actually come up pretty. Yeah. Well, we'll bring this, we'll bring this home. Cause I don't yeah. want to hold you from that. Cause I think it's an important what you're doing. I mean, just, it's great that you bring that up because I, I, you know, one of the things, one of the most simple ways that I think that people can reconnect themselves to the earth and to other people, is just by taking a walk. Yeah. It's, it's something that almost anyone can carve out 20 minutes of their day to do. Yeah, and there's there's so much you can learn about just your own neighborhood. Like from once you get a sense of like taking the pulse of your neighborhood, like what other people are doing whenever they're just taking a walk, and then you start to meet people in different ways. You start to 
you start to see the world in a new way and your world starts to be different. Absolutely. And and we don't have time to do this now. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll do a part two on another day, but um, you introduced to me the idea of psychogeography. Oh which yeah. Is, which is yeah. a form of, of both, um, you know, the, the, the basics, just the, the, the sort of the boil it down to its most simplest understanding is that it's actively changing your route and then taking observation of what that change does to you on every level of your being, right? Emotionally, does it make you feel scared? Does it make you feel elated? Does it have a house that you like? Is it, you know, uh, physically, is it a longer route? Does it make you, is it the train harder? Is it smoother? Um, et cetera, et cetera. Is there, is there, do you pass by flowers that, that cast a scent like um, lavender or uh, I don't know, some of the, you know, just those trees that just give out that beautiful smell that like, remind you of something else um, or, or even the opposite. You know, we always think of smells as being positive, but like the smell of wet pigeon shit ha- I have fond memories of Yeah, because, because my mom used to have a cheesecake shop that had a terrible pigeon uh, uh, issue for a long time. And when it would rain, it would smell horrible, right? And and so even though that smell was unpleasant, it reminds me of that time of my childhood when I'd go to mom's work and I'd sit in the back and I had some of my most, most creative moments waiting for her to finish work because I had that time to myself to to explore my imagination. And so you that's very difficult to experience in a car. Yeah. And it's very difficult to experience whenever you have uh, Bluetooth headphones in and, you know, like at the risk of being the old man that's shaking his hand at the clouds. <laughs> Cause like, whatever that there's something about that, that's true, but it's also like something about that experience that is very legitimate, which is that like we are the more and more divorced we get from whatever the world is, um, not objectively, but, you know, unobserved, you right. know, the more we have to like consciously reinsert ourselves into that, into, into the landscape and to be a part of everything that's happening. And so if the only way to do it is to like intentionally shut everything else off and just go be in the world for a little bit and then experience it that way, then you, I think you should, I think you have to. Because yeah, it certainly enriched my life a lot. Absolutely. And and there's value in changing it up, right? I always yeah. recommend that if you have to listen to music, just like for people who need to listen to like soft music when they meditate, because walking is absolutely a form of meditation, active meditation. Um, try to select music without lyrics. Something, yeah. about, something about a message draws your attention, right? Classical music, jazz, French jazz is my favorite. Like find something that just sets a tone in the background, but it still allows you to be observant and, and then change it up one day, go without one day, go with music. Maybe try classical music versus French jazz. Maybe try, um, change, be active in your, in how you adjust the way in which you do things and yeah. just take stock of how that makes you feel. And that in of itself can teach you so much about oneself and you who's coming from this life threatening incident to say that one of the most profound things that you could do is to just take a walk and be in that presence. That, that to me is, is a profound statement that anyone can do. And in my opinion has a far larger, larger cultural impact than what we do or what we say online. 
or in a voting booth for that matter. Yeah. I mean, cause one, one very obvious difference is that you are in control of it. You know, you'd set the pace, you set the tone, you set the route and you just can't in any of those other environments, no matter what you just can't, somebody else is in control of everything, you know? Right. And I guess when it, well, I want to, I guess I want to put it this way. Whenever you start to take back a little bit of control, even just in something as simple as this, then the, the absence of the control that you have in, in other spheres is like much more pronounced. And then it makes them even less, um, less desirable to you as a result, which makes which which ultimately means that the way that you participate in the world shifts kind of kind of a lot in, in and, short uh, order too huh yeah and 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 almost never in a bad way right I, I think that the that we are bound by reclaiming our agency to become God once again yeah. it's, it's it is it is the burden that is thrust upon us beyond everything else and I think that if we focus our attention on that and we and we share, that experiences and and not to say that you need to um, what's it called when when uh, religious people try to convert you uh, proselytizing. Thank you. It, it, no one is saying you have to do that. In fact, they don't recommend it. But what I have found is that when you start to experience those changes within oneself, it is impossible for people not to notice. Whether they're just noticing the calm in your voice or they're noticing you not getting upset and flipping off the guy that cut you off in traffic or or they're noticing that you speak slower, yeah. that you take a deep breath perhaps before you formulate a conclusion to a difficult question, that you um, are more open, understanding, empathetic, emotional all qualities that we in our modern society, in our modern utilitarian um, society have sort of made undesirable that those things cannot be ignored and they become attractive in the same way that removing even briefly the absence of a predetermined path then makes when you're living in your predetermined world, it almost intolerable to have your life set out for you as determined by someone who has no comprehension of who you are because you don't have comprehension of who you are. And as we reclaim that, it becomes so evident what fits us and what doesn't. And in my experience, and I, I feel confident saying that you probably have a similar experience, basically everything about our modern society feels unnatural in a lot yes. of ways. Yeah entirely and like you know this is this really is a whole other discussion as well but like if you pick a thing that disturbs you about the world whether it's like a i don't know your your neighborhood is going it's it's because of crime or because of whatever it may be or you see people being terrible in some way or another or whatever whatever the the broad array of objectionable behaviors in the world that's all reduced to people knowing that they have no control and they have no way to express themselves other than just to like 
lash out at everyone else. And you you can cut against that very, very simply just on your own. And then, you know, the best way to do psychogeography is with another person or another few people, especially. So, like, it's a method of building community as well as, you know, changing yourself. And then maybe maybe you can kind of change at least a little bit of the world. You can at least set a different tone. So if you are, whatever, frustrated with the world, and if you're not, then <laughs> uh, that's fine, I guess. Sp- spend some time in contemplation yeah. and, and see if you still feel the way afterward. Right. Exactly. What's, the worst, what's the worst that could happen? You become a pessimist like us. <laughs> that's right. Well, I can't think of a better way to end this uh, again. We'll, we'll, ha- we'll probably need to do this again really, really soon because it's like we probably could talk for like three hours, uh, but yeah. I know you have things to do. So thank you obviously for your time. Uh, thank you for making such a, a rapid recovery. Um, you're, you are truly one of, if not my most favorite and dearest of friends and uh, to see you even, even from hearing your fir- first podcast back on your podcast, the regrettable century, um, to hearing you now, I've already noticed like your speech is so much even that much closer to before the accident and your movements. Just walk at you, watching you walk across the room or dance as you're doing now. <laughs> um, miraculous is really the, the best and only word to describe it. So uh, thank you for being you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for sharing your perspective. I, it's always, always appreciated. And I think it's going to resonate with a lot of people. So, you know, thank you again for sharing your story with everyone and we'll bring you on really soon to talk more about psychogeography and politics. And there's so much going on in the world that this almost needs to be its own podcast series just to cover it all. That's right. Um, I don't, I don't know if there's a good way to do this, but just also the, the role that you played in particular at every stage of the recovery was also instrumental. And I don't think there's a way I can say thank you for that. But um, from here on out, like actually just for the rest of the existence or the rest of the time that both of us are consciously a part of this plane of existence, that will be something that I will be trying to figure out how to do. And uh, I guess everybody should hear that. Thank you for that. Well, I, I appreciate that. And um in every step of your recovery, that's a thank you worth the infinite amount of thank yous. Every piece of progress that you do is a way of showing gratitude. Um, you know, my role, I was compelled. I mean, you're my friend, you're my brother. There's, there's no other option, but, but to be there. Um, but in terms of the, the forces that I believe really did help with your recovery, that's divine. And I, mm-hmm. at best, was a conduit to, to sort of shape it in your direction as, as was many, many, many people in, in a variety of ways, be it spiritually, financially, uh, emotionally, or, or the like. So, um, yeah, man, I'm glad that you're here. That's, that's the best way to say it. It's like, I'm glad you're here. Uh, sad that you're in Texas while I'm in Los Angeles, but I'll see you soon, no doubt. And we'll be going on long walks, drinking copious amounts of coffee, I'm sure. And and before we know it. Yeah. Very soon. I'll talk to you later, my friend. I would like to thank Jason once again for coming on the podcast. I'm not only grateful of his time, but also his sharing of perspective, uh, what he was feeling, what he feels now, the questions that have been cast upon him. You know, we, we have this idea 
that if we have these near death experiences that we're supposed to come out of it with some some sense of clarity. And if you listen to the podcast, perhaps we have both as those who loved Jason and Jason himself, who's persevered and come out the other side of it. And yet, isn't that the reality of, of all of our situations that sometimes it takes these really intense life-changing moments before simple truths like stopping the small flowers become evident. The world today is increasingly negative. It's increasingly reactionary. It's increasingly aggressive. You see that in the way people drive, which is very relevant to how Jason ended up in this predicament. You see it on social media, the way people act toward each other, how how shitty they are with one another, how they lived i mean there are whole youtube channels devoted to tearing people down with some sort of faux interest in and in, in justice or what have you but really they what they really do is they exist to just shit on other people who are bold enough to actually put art out into the world we see it with people at the store how they treat the clerks who take care of them we see it in the way we talk to each other and our family members and how friendships, families, units can be divided over stupid things like politics and ideologies. And yet to have someone so close to you nearly have their life blipped out of existence because of someone who is exuding these very same aggressive tendencies that most people today find themselves trapped in. It brings a brand new perspective to me that a lot of the things that we find ourselves worked up on are just simply not worth the energy that we devote them. I was listening to a podcast with um, Duncan Trussell, and he described it thusly. It's like someone shooting an arrow at you, it landing at your feet, you pulling it from the ground and you stabbing yourself, asking yourself with every stab, why did they shoot this at me? How often in life do we see people who are aggressive or selfish or narcissistic, self-centered, cruel, and we decide to drink poison so that we may spit it back at them? I know I'm guilty of it. And yet in talking with Jason, thinking about what could have been, I can't help but find myself less inclined to do so. Oh, Trust me, there will still be the occasional angry tweet back, especially when I see something that's incredibly disrespectful or just pathetic. But I do think that my goal going forward is to spend less time in a virtual world locked in combat with some nerd who's never punched a werewolf before arguing about this, that or the other. It's it's to, to spend less time yelling at cars that cut you off, flipping them off or brake checking them. And to put all those aggressions aside as much as possible and through ritual work, through magic, through meditation, through self-evaluation, find myself stopping, slowing down, pausing, being present and spending more of my time doing things that enrich my soul rather than corrode it. If Jason's story has taught us anything is that life is precious and life is short. So today, as you go about your day, as the week unfolds, as we start to slide towards Thanksgiving, I would ask you all to just take a moment to ask yourself, if tomorrow is the end, how will you spend today? 
I want to thank Jason once again for being on the podcast. I want to thank you all for listening. Again, I do this as a labor of love for you all. The feedback that I get is is always so humbling, and I appreciate it deeply. If you'd like to have a comment on another podcast you've heard, if you have a question for me, um, I'm, I am trying to scale back on social media, but you can find me on Twitter, at Dave Oscuro. I'm, I'm usually there at least first thing in the morning, even if I put my phone away the rest of the day. Um, if there's an important question you might have or if there's a comment on the podcast, please, love to hear it. Love the feedback. Really appreciate you all. And, um, and thank you all once again for your time. So without uh, further ado, I wish you a pleasant afternoon. I wish you all a happy autumn. And until next time, gold rings on you all.